Let's open our Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. We'll read the first 13 verses this morning. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem was going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals. And the angels were ministering to him. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the beginning of the good news marked the end of a very long wait. The Old Testament ends as a question seeking an answer. It ends in expectation. The Old Testament ends with promises hanging in the air as a story begging to be finished. It leaves the nation again in bondage, needing a new exodus. And exodus always begins in the wilderness. The last of the Old Testament prophets, Malachi, had spoken before 400 BC, and then silence. It was a silence predicted by the prophet Amos when he said that a famine was coming on the land, a famine not of food and drink, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. 400 years of silence until John the Baptist appeared. And what he does first is invite Israel to come back to the wilderness. That word wilderness appears four times in our brief passage and interestingly not again in the Gospel of Mark. And we're going to sort of key on that this morning. First of all, I want to say to us, the wilderness, I mean, sort of suggests a nice place, right? We have wilderness societies Think of national parks, unspoiled beauty, camping trips, and REI. But that's not at all how it's used in Scripture. NIV, I think, has desert, which is probably better. Wasteland, I think, would be a good choice for us. Because the wilderness is a barren, desolate place. A place inhospitable to us. A place not made for man. Uh, hostile to us. 
we should contrast it first with, first of all, the garden. And by that I mean Eden, paradise, the place God made for us, well watered, full of life and every tree pleasant to the sight and good for food, where God provided for us and walked with us. And then secondly, I think we can contrast it with the city, (coughs) which is what we do for ourselves without God. It's the place we make for ourselves. We build walls and, and, you know, it's a place we can feel safe and provide for our own needs and feel self-sufficient. And most especially feel like we're in control, like we can control events there. Now, when God led Israel out of bondage in Egypt, out of the city, he first brought them into the wilderness. He brought them through the wilderness into the promised land. And this is a theme throughout the Old Testament. Hosea is great for this. Uh, The Lord, through Hosea the prophet, in chapter 11, verse 1, says this, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. So this is referring to the redemption from Egypt, the Exodus. God called his son out of Egypt, called Israel into the wilderness. So we read in Hosea 13:5, God says to Israel, I knew you in the wilderness, in the land of great drought. Okay, but then God brings them into the promised land. And when they get there, we read in the very next verse, God says, when they had pasture, they were filled. They were filled and their heart was lifted up. Therefore, they forgot me. (coughs) Which is kind of how this tends to go. You know, we're in the wilderness where God sustains us. We come into a place where we can feel self-sufficient. With Israel, this soon led to idolatry and eventually to captivity. Um, And then, having fallen again into bondage, God speaks of how he will redeem Israel again. And he speaks of it this way in Hosea chapter 2. The prophet talks about how Israel went after her lovers. Then God says, she forgot me. There's that phrase again says the Lord, therefore, behold, I will allure her. I will bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. So that was the place of first betrothal. And that's the place God says he'll bring the nation again. It's the place of renewal of their first love. Now, when John appeared, Israel again is in bondage to Rome, which Sometimes I think, well, what was, what's wrong with that? Italy was ruling the world. All was right with the world. But, but the Bible doesn't seem to like the situation. Israel is, is in bondage again to this, to this empire and, and stands there for all mankind in bondage to sin and death. And the coming of the gospel is a new, the, the coming of the gospel is a new exodus. I think I've said that once or twice. That's, what our, that's how our redemption looks in scriptural terms. So that when Jesus, in fact, was on the Mount of Transfiguration, talking to Moses and Elijah, 
Matthew and Mark don't tell us what they were talking about, but Luke does. Uh, it says that they were talking about uh, his exodus. That's what the Greek actually says. It's usually translated departure. That, that, so here's Moses talking to Jesus about the exodus that Jesus was about to fulfill, is what it says, in Jerusalem. Okay, the coming of the gospel is a new exodus. And so we find it begins in the wilderness. In our passage, we'll see three things. The promise in the wilderness, the baptism in the wilderness, and finally, the temptation in the wilderness. So first, the promise in the wilderness. Mark begins where the Old Testament ends, actually with the promise of Malachi, the last Old Testament prophet. So he says in verse 2, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, and he will prepare your way. Now that's Malachi 3.1, which goes on. The next very next thing it says is, And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. So it's this turn, it's this promise of God's return and redemption of his people. But notice, Behold, I will send your messen- my messenger before your face. Now, that's going to be John the Baptist. But here, Malachi is actually quoting Exodus 23.20. At least he's echoing it. But in the Greek Old Testament, the words are identical. I underline them on the slide. Yeah, behold, I send my angel before your face. Now, in both Greek and Hebrew, the word angel is the, is the word messenger. Um, that he may keep you in your way, that he may bring you into the land which I have prepared for you. So Malachi is echoing the promise made to Moses in the wilderness that God would bring them through uh, uh, that place and into the promised land. And Malachi uh, uh, is thus bringing a promise of a new redemption to Israel, and that's what Mark is quoting I garbled that, but you maybe get the idea. Malachi is promising a new exodus. And in the next verse, uh, Mark 1.3, the next verse again places us in the wilderness. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. That's Isaiah 40, verse 3, the chapter that begins rather famously, comfort ye. Comfort ye, my people. Speak ye comfortably of Jerusalem. Tell them their warfare is ended, etc. And that begins the great section of Isaiah about the Redeemer to come, the promised servant who would redeem Israel, that climaxes in Isaiah 53, which should be familiar to most of us as that great promise of the suffering servant who would bear our sins and carry our iniquities. (coughs) Excuse me. But it begins here with a voice crying in the wilderness. So again, a messenger preparing the way for the coming Redeemer. So that's these promises, these wilderness promises. And next we come to this baptism in the wilderness. The messenger appears in the next verse. And we find him doing a very strange thing, a thing that looks like wasn't really done before. Uh, In Mark 1, 4, John appears, 
baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. John's at the Jordan River dunking people under the water, it appears. Uh, and, and it was a baptism, an immersion of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, I'm tempted to talk all morning about baptism, about how important it is, how it's sometimes neglected. <clears throat> but I've been accused of being a little slow when I work through a passage of Scripture, so I'm not going to do that. I do want to say it's a huge thing. Paul says, you know, don't you know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him in bapt- through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, we also should walk in newness of life. So this is it's being buried with Christ in baptism and coming out of the waters into a new life. But what I want to focus on this morning is, 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 is the place this has in the story of Israel. Because when Israel came out of Egypt, the very first thing we're told is Exodus 13:18. God led the people around by way of the wilderness of the Red Sea. So they come out of Egypt and immediately they're in the wilderness the wilderness of the Red Sea, and the children of Israel went up in orderly ranks out of the land of Egypt. So, the first thing on the agenda when they come out of bondage is that Israel had to pass through the midst of the sea, a kind of death and rebirth, a baptism. Now, if you think I'm stretching things there, the Apostle Paul doesn't. Because he uses this very analogy in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 where he says, Moreover, brethren, I don't want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, cloud by day, fire by night. All passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Paul has a lot to say about what baptism is, but it is first of all a reenactment of the baptism of the nation of Israel in passing through the midst of the sea. And as all Israel came to that sea, we read, and it's interesting how Mark puts this, and all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Uh, that's an interesting, that, that's in the imperfect in the Greek, so it's, it's, like, a, it's like a motion picture. You've got to picture the people are coming. Uh, he's, he's indicating a stream of people coming and being baptized, more people coming and being baptized. Well, now we do meet the promised messenger, and he was a tough man, a man of the wilderness. But he was pointing people away from himself and toward one who was coming. He was preparing the way for someone else. So we read in Mark 1, 6 through 8, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist. And he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, after he, me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water but he will baptize you uh, with the Holy Spirit. So that 
The baptism of John with water was also a foreshadowing of that greater baptism to come, that, that baptism in the Holy Spirit prophesied by the prophet Joel that would, that, that would occur first at Pentecost. Um, and we'll leave that for another day. But, but what I, I want you to just picture, these are exciting days. These are revival times. All Judea and Jerusalem coming out into the wilderness by the Jordan River there, publicly confessing their sins. Think about that. Publicly confessing their sins as John was dunking them in the River Jordan. And in the midst of all this activity, Jesus of Nazareth also comes out to the wilderness to join them. So we read in verse 9 that in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> so, what's the picture? Israel is in the wilderness, and now Jesus joins them. He comes out to them there, where they are. He identifies with the sinners even by coming. But much more, he himself is baptized along with them. <coughs> but John... Think about this. He's preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So why would Jesus do that? He didn't need any forgiveness. People were going into the water confessing their sins, but Jesus had no sins to confess. What's up with this? Certainly John wondered. In fact, Matthew tells us that he tried to stop him. Remember in Matthew 3.14, John tried to prevent him, saying, I shouldn't be baptizing you. You should be baptizing me. So that's kind of a funny picture. Uh, John, I mean, a lot of people came to be baptized. Jesus comes, John, saying, I don't think so. But he does, because what's going on? What Jesus was doing was promised long ago by the prophet Isaiah in that chapter 53 we mentioned. In that verse where it says, he poured out his soul unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. The key here is that he came and he was numbered with the transgressors. So you're counting up the sinners and Jesus is is there with them. Uh, Numbered with the transgressors. By his very first act of public ministry, he was identifying with our plight, our brokenness, our sin. Jesus' own baptism was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin, but the sins were not his own. They were ours. So that this first baptism down into the water was a kind of first rehearsal, a hint of that final baptism to which his whole life was pointing. And in fact, long after this event at the Jordan River, Jesus would say in Luke chapter 12, but I have yet a baptism to be baptized with, and how distressed I am till it is accomplished. Jesus says, no, there's another baptism for which I'm heading. He intended not just to go down into the water and up again, but to go down much deeper, to go all the way down through death and hell itself 
to bring forgiveness of sin and to bring us back up with him into the light, into life everlasting, that, that we might be seated with him in the heavenly places. But first here, Jesus humbles himself, coming to the wilderness to John, being baptized with the sinners. And his heavenly father sees all this, and he lifts him up again. We read in verses 10 and 11 that when Jesus came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. It's a shame not to camp on those verses for a while. But let me just say again, his father sees. He sees what Jesus is about. And he loved him. He was very pleased. As if he's saying, though in this wilderness far from heaven, clothed in the likeness of sinful flesh, though emptied of your glory, you are yet my son and I love you still. I love you most especially now. I'm so pleased with you for taking on yourself the redemption of mankind, for giving your life for the life of the world. And before leaving this, this scene, we have to note the whole Trinity, right, presented before us. God the Son coming up out of the water in obedience to his Father. God the Spirit descending on him as a dove. God the Father expressing his love for his Son. Okay, so we've seen the promises in the wilderness, the baptism in the wilderness, <clears throat> And finally, temptation in the wilderness. Because the wilderness is, above all things, a place of temptation, of testing. Mark 1, 12 through 13. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels ministering to him. So Jesus has come out of the water of baptism, okay, and his father acknowledges him. The Holy Spirit has anointed him. And now the same spirit who had descended on him as gently as a dove drives him out immediately, casts him out yet where? Deeper into the wilderness, deeper yet into the wilderness. Jesus has been commissioned for his task And now immediately we see the stakes involved, and they couldn't be higher. The Apostle John would later write in his first epistle, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Want to know why Jesus came? This is one way of putting it. And I wonder, I can't prove this, But I wonder if perhaps it was at this moment that Satan first knew with certainty who he was, right? I mean, after all, God had just spilled the beans in a sense. Uh, This is my son. There may have been at least a new realization. Uh, There's the adversary. Here he is. In any case, uh, Jesus immediately joins battle with Satan. And the fight begins in the wilderness. And again, this is no weekend retreat, okay? He's in waste places. 
blighted by the rule of Satan, a place that cannot support a human being, where there is no seed, no fruit, very little to drink and nothing to eat, and where there is danger not only from starvation, but from the wild animals there. Adam began in a garden, you know, with the gentle animals coming up to him, you know, pet him, pet him, and then he named them and they frolic away, you know. You mustn't think of that picture here. You should think more Mordor than Eden. Jesus is suffering deprivation, loneliness, and danger there in the wilderness. The wild animals represent that danger. And there he's tested. He's tempted by his adversary, which is what Satan means. And he's tested for 40 days. And that number should, should ring a bell for any of us who know the history of man's redemption told in the scripture. It's a number that keeps coming up. When judgment fell on man's wickedness in the days of Noah... The rain was on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. When Elijah fled in fear from Queen Jezebel, he went through the wilderness for 40 days uh, and 40 nights, as far as Horeb or Sinai, the mountain of God, where God spoke to him and commissioned him for the task ahead. But of course, first of all and foremost, it should remind us of the 40 years that Israel spent in the wilderness before entering the land of promise. And why were they there? Moses explained that to them at the end of that journey in Deuteronomy chapter 8. It says, when you get into that land, remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness. Why? To humble you, to test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Which, of course, is the very verse, one of the verses Jesus will quote to Satan in the temptation of, you know, turn these stones into bread. Jesus will quote this very verse. So the wilderness is a place of testing. It's a place of finding out that you can't make it without God, right? Um, It's a helpless place. And Jesus stands there for Israel facing temptation because he means to redeem Israel. And in him will be gathered the new Israel of God, as Paul will term the church. But he also stands there for all mankind, as Adam stood for all of us, his children, when he succumbed to Satan's temptation in paradise. But now here in the wilderness, the outcome would be different. This is when everything began to change for us, right? The writer of Hebrews says, we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. The yet without sin part, that had never happened before. That was something new. 
in the history of humanity. Adam fell, but Jesus stood. And his stand in the wilderness was just a beginning. But in that moment, the terrible knot that the universe was twisted in began to come undone. Satan's long spell, his invincible darkness spread over our sad world began to break in that hour when Jesus uh, chose to live by every mouth that proceeded from the Lord, right? When his commandments became his bread. Of course, there's no indication that Satan left Jesus alone after he left the desert. This was the beginning. Battle had been joined. It would go on and on until it reached its climax on the cross of Calvary, where in the very moment he seemed finally defeated, Jesus would win the decisive victory for us over Satan and sin and death and hell. And the angels ministered to him. I didn't used to like that. I thought, well, that's not really fair. I mean, he gets to have angels ministering to him. But, you know, the angels ministered to him as the angels ministered to Israel in their wilderness years before. And as they minister to us now in our own wilderness journey, though we are mostly unaware. Again, the writer of Hebrews, are they not the angels, all ministering spirits sent forth to minister to those who will inherit salvation? They minister to us. We don't get it. We're, we're blinded by the things that we can see. But there's more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of sometimes in our philosophies. You know, um, <clears throat> this reminds me, and if you'll give me another two minutes, I'll... There's a story I love, I think is directly relevant, in, in it's actually in 2 Corinthians, or 2 Kings 6, about Elisha, the prophet Elisha. Uh, and you may remember that the king of Syria was trying to attack Israel, but every time he planned this great attack, he'd go there, and they, they knew he was coming. Every time they knew he was coming. It's kind of like a, a baseball team stealing signs through technology so that you know the pit, you know exactly what pitch is coming. That's no way to win a World Series. But anyway, <laughs> the king of Syria is like, which of you is a spy for the king of Israel? And they said, we're, we're well, none of us, but there's a prophet in Israel. You can't even talk in your own bedroom, but he doesn't know what you're saying. They said, well, we've got to find this guy. Where is he? Well, they found that he was in Dothan. So the king of Syria sent, sent horses and chariots and a great army. And in the night, they surrounded this city of Dothan where Elisha was. And early in the morning, his servant went out. And he looks around the hills. And, and there's all these horses and chariots and this great army. And he's terrified. And he runs into the house and says, Master, Master, alas, alas, what shall we do? And, you know, Elisha said, what, what? You know, don't, no worries. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And uh, Elisha prayed, we read in the scripture, and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw 
And behold, the mountains were full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And the only difference then, the, nothing had changed about the situation except that the servant could see it. So I wouldn't begrudge Jesus uh, an angel or two to minister to him uh, as they do to us as we walk through this valley of the shadow. Okay, so the messenger promised by the prophets had prepared his way. Jesus had come out to John into the wilderness to be baptized and then yet deeper into the wilderness being tested by the devil. But when those 40 days were accomplished, he came out of the wilderness into the land of promise, into Israel to proclaim to his people the good news of the arrival of the kingdom of God. That as he had long ago in Egypt, their Lord had seen their affliction and had come to redeem them. And we'll follow Jesus as he begins his public ministry there next time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you, Lord, uh, for your word. Uh, I pray that you might take whatever's of the truth uh, that's been spoken here this morning and make it fruitful in our hearts for Jesus. Lord, I thank you for each one who's uh, patiently sat through this sermon this morning. I pray that your good hand of blessing would rest upon them. Father, that you would encourage their hearts, strengthen them, uh, give them grace, protect them from every evil thing as we go from here. And now, Lord, I, I ask that you would make our worship acceptable to you as we lift up the precious name of our Lord and Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.